Welcome to the Ralston College Podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Today's episode is the second of two lectures by Alan Charles Coors, the Henry Charles Lee Professor Emeritus of the University of Pennsylvania's History Department, and a world expert on the European Enlightenment. In this second lecture, Dr. Coors continues his exploration of Voltaire's philosophical letters. In the first lecture, Dr. Coors outlined the life of Voltaire and showed how his admiration of the values of the English empirical tradition were articulated in the letters that he wrote from exile in England. Today, we turn from English science and philosophy to English religion and the many striking points of contrast Voltaire describes between the England of his exile and the France of his birth. We'll hear him speaking with Quakers, considering the place of proto-Unitarians and surveying the wide range of sects that were tolerated in the English Isles. We'll also see Voltaire offering scandalous sociological explanations for spiritual phenomena, and finally, taking stock of his own society through the direct encounter with another. Ultimately, Voltaire makes a persuasive case for pluralism and shows great moral courage in his advocacy for religious toleration. Through Dr. Kors's brilliant exposition of Voltaire's argument, rhetoric, and skillful presentation, he also shows us precisely why the careful and sympathetic study of such figures is so important today. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone. I'm Stephen Blackwood. I'm the president of Ralston College, a new institution of higher education in Savannah. And it is an immense pleasure for me to welcome back to this lecture series my friend and a man I greatly admire, Dr. Alan Charles Coors, a renowned Enlightenment historian. His specialty is in the history of early modern thought, especially of France. He has written a number of books on atheism in France, in fact, a, a trilogy of books on that title. He's also written widely and lectured widely on academic freedom, on freedom of thought and conscience, I do not think there is a greater articulator, a better exponent, or a greater exemplar of why these questions matter so much to human life and flourishing. Dr. Kors today is going to give us the second of two lectures on Voltaire's Philosophical Letters, a work published in 1733, which I should note is the year that the city of Savannah was founded by Oglethorpe under, you might say, many of the same principles that are present in and articulated in Voltaire's Philosophical Letters, a work which was banned and burned, but came to be very influential for reasons Dr. Kors will share with us today. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Stephen, thank you. It is a privilege to be here and thank you all participants for coming to hear this. Let us take a closer look now at a text that for many was the first essential work 
of the French Enlightenment. You might have read it and wondered what the fuss was about in the sense that it can read innocuously or lightly to us in the 21st century. But it did not read that way in the 18th century, which is where historians come in. Contemporaries did not find it an innocuous text. Let me share some of the reviews in learned journals, above all written by theologians, clerics, uh, defenders of the faith, in response to the philosophical letters. Uh, in the year it was published, the following reviews. Voltaire has raised a cry of sedition and brigandage, but fortunately in France, people know how to live, how to respect their superiors. Another reviewer wrote about Voltaire's witticism at the expense of the collection of tithes, the 10% of one's income and wealth that was to be given to the church. Monsieur de Voltaire ignores that the practice of paying tithes to priests goes back to ancient times, indeed to that of Abraham and Melchizedek. A wit does not grasp such facts and such tradition. Another reviewer opined, Voltaire gives us, quote, maxims made to arm subjects and foment revolts. A leading theologian wrote of Voltaire's use of the metaphors of liberty and slavery, chains are hard to bear, but fortunately that is a poetic expression that one ordinarily uses in love as in politics and of which no one should be afraid in this country, more afraid in this country than lovers are afraid of chains. Another responding to the chapter on inoculation wrote, the French nature revolts against the system of inoculation. We submit to the decrees of providence. Another reviewer writing in the leading Catholic intellectual journal in France picked up on Voltaire's calling these philosophical letters. And just what is a philosoph, he wrote, it is a genre of monster in society who owes nothing to its morals, to its proprieties, to its politics, to a religion. One should expect anything from the part of those gentlemen. The book was condemned and the procurer general had the book burned in front of the hall of justice. Voltaire wrote to a friend, well, we have made progress in France. They used to burn the author. Now they merely burn the book. 
there was a warrant for his arrest that was met only by his accepting a banishment from Paris. Given the way French men and women of letters thought about Paris in the 18th century, think of it as there's New York City and there's North Dakota. Uh, for Voltaire, he was banned from the center of French intellectual life. He also added, however, that the diabolical, blasphemous, abominable philosophical letters are selling quite well. Indeed, though the book was banned and publishers could be in difficulty for publishing it, the work went through five editions in 1734 and five more editions in the next five years. For a French audience, Voltaire holds up the example of England both to increase their sense of the relativity of where one is born determining so much of what one believes and how one acts, and to offer them an absolute set of perspectives from which to judge their own political, social, and intellectual culture. If we're to understand why this book aroused the fierce response that it did, both in favor and critically against, we need to identify some aspects of context. When something occurs for an historian is magical. Context, if we are to read this with 18th century and not 21st century eyes, context is critical. So let's take a quick look at the aspects of France in the 18th century that Voltaire is addressing by his discussions of England. In theory, France is an absolute monarchy. In fact, there are rivalries that mitigate that, but in theory, France is an absolute monarchy, kings chosen, anointed by God, and royal edicts, which supersede all other things, are signed, for such is my pleasure. Par mon bon plaisir, this now is law in France. France is divided legally into three estates. The first estate are the clergy. The second estate, the aristocracy. The third estate, commoners. And this distinction in status is the stuff of everyday life in France. Walking into church, what pews one takes, entering buildings, one goes clergy, aristocrats, and commoners. There are rules who may dress, who may have a sword at their side, all of which pertain to three estates and the differences assigned to them. 
there is in France only one religion. In 1685, France revoked by royal edict, toleration of Protestants in France. The French Protestant minority known as the Huguenots or Huguenots, after 1685 found themselves with marriages that were not recognized, they had not occurred in a Catholic church, children who were declared bastards and not fit for inheritance. The public worship in Protestant mode was outlawed and severely punished, and Protestant ministers, anyone preaching the Protestant version of the gospel or conducting Protestant religious services was subject to imprisonment and, in theory, the death penalty. That France, as the saying went, la France toute catholique, an entirely Catholic France, was one with an official and quite proud religious intolerance, an official and very proud religious intolerance. Religious tolerance was seen as indifference. If someone committed temporal murder, they lost their life. How much more to commit the eternal murder of a soul and damn it to hell by leading someone away from the true faith? Intolerance, theologians in France agreed, was love, was compassion. Would you let someone step off a cliff knowing they would fall to their death? Would you let someone stay in a burning building? And an essential argument in favor of religious intolerance it was almost universally believed in France and indeed in almost all of Europe that uniformity is essential to civil peace. That if people disagree about deep and essential things, there will be no stability, there will be no order. Religious intolerance was a sine qua non, a prerequisite of maintaining civil peace and stability. To continue with our presentation of what aspects of French life Voltaire is addressing between the lines of the philosophical letters, in England, there is primogeniture, the firstborn son of an aristocrat inherits title and estate. In France, every child of an aristocrat is an aristocrat. And in France, aristocracy means that one does not engage in commerce, in trade, or in physical labor. If one does not live nobly, as the expression went, vivre noblement, if one does not live nobly, one loses one's nobility. 
It also meant in France that a family's estate, if every son could inherit, would get divided very quickly and a family's wealth very quickly destroyed. And so one of the great dramas of French life, what do all these aristocrats do in terms of securing a worthwhile place in the world for second or third or fourth sons? And the placement of sons had to be in professions that were considered noble, royal administration, the church, the army. And so one would see in France sons of aristocrats, young, unqualified, placed in high positions in the church and high positions in the military. And again, if a French aristocrat engaged in commerce, trade, manual labor, they experienced what was known as derogation, the loss of noble status. Further, the clergy and the aristocracy were essentially exempt from taxation. And indeed, professions, guilds, cities would buy with one massive payment permanent exemption from taxation so that they would not be classified among the lowly who paid taxes, and indeed so that they did not have to pay taxes at all. There is a low social status of commerce that permeates French life in the 18th century. And now to the text. Note, as you read the philosophical letters, Voltaire's style, his manner of drawing a reader into the text. He begins with a veiled and transitional voice. He moves from an innocent, naive, pious French Catholic in letter one, shocked by what he's learning about the Quakers and how they differ from Catholicism, to a self-confident new philosopher midway in the text. Note also in his style, Voltaire's use of irony and laughter. It is essential to Voltaire's sense of persuasion. Indeed, it's part of what we mean by the adjective Voltairean, that if you laugh, at something you had taken as sacred, as elevated, if you laugh at one of the idols of your culture, you have changed the way you think about it. And also with his use of irony, Voltaire loves to give you the facts that let you reach the very opposite pious conclusion that he has drawn. It is wonderfully Voltairean to allow the reader to draw his or her own enlightened conclusions. Religion is the most important aspect of a culture for his readers, 
and certainly the most exotic when they read the literature of missionaries and travelers to other places. And Voltaire not only begins his introduction to England with the religions of England, but with a cult in effect that the French find peculiarly odd and bizarrely unorthodox. And he makes them a paragon of relative virtue. Thus, letters one to four of the philosophical letters are on the Quakers. It is as if one began an introduction to the United States with four letters on Hare Krishna or the Reverend Moon's Unification Church. What an interesting way to be drawn into the world of England. And what does he do with his Quakers? It is an introduction to a new religion and an increase of relativism. The ability of his readers now to see something, not only from the side they traditionally believed, but from another side as well. And to think, had I been born into this, this is the way I would have thought. And right away, he is shocked, Voltaire, to discover that his Quaker has never been baptized. Dear sir, I said to him, have you been baptized? No, answered the Quaker, and neither are my brethren. What the deuce, I replied, then you are not Christians? My son, he replied gently, do not swear. We are indeed Christians and we try to be good Christians, but we do not believe that Christianity depends on throwing cold water and a bit of salt on the head. Voltaire, now in his mode of naive, pious French Catholic, is scandalized and argues, and his Quaker quotes scripture in favor of his view, Voltaire quotes in favor of his, and what lesson is being given there when we argue about religion citing scripture? People choose those chapters and those verses that favor their view. When Voltaire persists in his astonishment that we have now a Quaker who claims to be a Christian who is not baptized, the Quaker asks Voltaire, are you circumcised? You say Jesus was baptized? Jesus was circumcised. Voltaire replies, no, I have not had that honor. The reader smiles. His Quakers 
also offer Voltaire a chance to show us Christianity without rituals. The simplicity of the Quakers is praised. The lack of ceremonialism, and most dramatically, the Quakers have no priests. And his interlocutor, Quaker, is appalled that people should put human beings between themselves and God. The letters on the Quakers are a foil to criticize the established churches, the simplicity of Quaker lives, their ethics, their sense of the equality of human beings, and their religious tolerance, their pacifism, their fear of exercising power, as shown when Voltaire introduces his readers to William Penn and to Pennsylvania. The new ruler was also the legislator for Pennsylvania. He made wise laws, none of which has been changed since that time. The first was to prohibit maltreatment of anyone because of his religion and to consider as brothers all those who believe in God. The Quakers are a foil also to criticize revealed and supernatural religion in general. Voltaire has his light jibes at the religion of the Quakers. Their enthusiasm, their inspiration and sense that God talks directly to them. At Quaker meetings in the 17th and in the 18th century, the congregation sat in silence awaiting for the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, to descend upon a worshiper who then would stand and speak through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Touched by the Holy Spirit, people would tremble and shake, hence the name the Quakers. You would have speaking in tongues at a Quaker meeting as the Holy Spirit spoke through the Quaker in a language not one's own. And Voltaire addressing this says, well, how do you distinguish between madness and the presence of the Holy Ghost? That's hard to do, the Quaker concedes, which is why we listen to everyone. Nevertheless, Voltaire here is far gentler than in his usual tone on particular religions and sects. A very striking aspect of Voltaire's discussion of the Quakers, and one of those forests one might miss by looking at the individual trees, is in his explanation toward the end of those letters about the fate of Quakerism in England, 
his explanation in terms of the dominance of the social over the religious, of custom over creed. Voltaire offers a purely secular and sociological analysis of why young Quakers are turning to the Anglican church. And it is in effect a purely social, one might now say sociological explanation. I cannot foretell the fate of the Quaker religion in America, but I see it dwindling daily in London. In every country, the dominant religion, if it does not persecute others, eventually swallows them up. The Quakers cannot be members of parliament or hold public office. To do so, they would have to swear an oath, which they refuse to do. They are reduced to making money by commerce. Their children, made wealthy by the industry of their fathers, now want to live in comfort, have titles, wear buttons and lace wristbands. They are ashamed of being called Quakers and to be fashionable. They have joined the Church of England. There is profound significance in Voltaire's treating religion as a phenomenon that can be studied in wholly natural terms. When theologians discuss changes in religion in the early modern world in the 17th and in the 18th centuries, it is almost always in terms of the temptations of Satan, the action of the Holy Ghost, the tests laid before us. It is a spiritual, a supernatural phenomenon. But for Voltaire, one may explain the fate of the Quakers in England, that is to say, the abandonment of one religion and the entering into another in terms of such things as social envy, jealousy, the consequences of wealthy parents. We now have a template that religion may be discussed in purely natural terms. In letter five, Voltaire turns to the established church in England, the Anglican Episcopal Church. And he begins it in a France that has outlawed Protestantism in the early modern period. He begins it with an offhand, but for any French reader, utterly astonishing sentence. This is the country of sects and Englishmen being a free man goes to heaven 
by whatever path he chooses. Being a free man chooses his own religious path. Insofar as the Church of England resembles the French Catholic Church, it is satirized and criticized. Insofar as it deviates from the French Catholic Church, it is gently, if ironically, praised. So the hierarchical institution of the episcopacy, archbishops and bishops governing the church, the episcopacy is attacked as above all interested in its tithes and social status. He stresses the intolerance of churchmen, of clergy, and their role in the wars and the devastating English 17th century civil war in England's past. But he praises within the establishment clause of the English church, the clear legal preeminence of the state and the far better morals of the English clergy as opposed to the French. Nevertheless, his sardonic tone toward clerics whom he presents as merely men and most imperfect men at that strikes every reader in France. His discussion of the lack of chastity, drunkenness, avarice, he implies, in the French church. And now he compares it to the English clergy. As far as morals are concerned, the Anglican clergy are better behaved than the French. This is the first estate he is talking about. These are those whom everyone in theory should look to as God's own anointed agents on earth. Yes, back to Voltaire. The Anglican church clergy are better behaved than the French. Here is the reason. All churchmen in England are educated at the universities of Oxford or Cambridge. Far from the corruption of the capital, they are called to the honors of the church only after many years, at the age when men's chief passion is avarice, and their ambition has nothing to feed upon. High position in the church as in the army is the reward for long service. Here, one does not see young bishops or colonels who have just left college. Every French reader understands the comparison. Aristocratic bishops appointed as young unpious, socially striving young men, worldly 
without spirituality. The foreign foil is so useful here to Voltaire and think of how now the reader must think about clergy. Here is the difference, Voltaire states. Young, it is lust that moves one. It is drunkenness, all the sins of the flesh. But in England, they're kept away from women at male universities. They're far from the corruption of the city. They get old in service to the church before they achieve high rank. And all that is left of their worldliness is exceptional greed, avarice. What does that do to awe and respect on the part of the readers? Letter six on the Presbyterians stresses their Calvinism, their Puritanism, their zeal, their intolerance, and their role in the Civil War. As Voltaire writes, in England, the people now have become better and more moral than their clerics. The Presbyterian clergy are filled with envy, they're poor, and the Anglican clergy are wealthy. They're intolerant. They still are proud of their role in the Civil War. But the people, the flocks, the congregations, Anglican and Presbyterian, wish to live together in peace. There is the astonishing conclusion of letter six on the Presbyterians, which marks nothing less than a reevaluation of civil society itself. The toleration and the moral and civic value of that toleration shown by the commercial, secular, and religiously diversified state and society in England. It is a clear message to an officially intolerant anti-commercial France where only the Catholic Church is tolerated and where birth is valued so much more highly than merit. Listen to the dramatic conclusion of letter six. You can hear values changing. Voltaire writes, the Episcopal and Presbyterian churches live together comfortably even though their preachers detest one another intensely. How, why, to what effect? Go into the Royal Exchange, the Commodity Exchange in London, a building more respectable than most courts. There you will find deputies from every nation assembled 
simply to serve mankind. What follows astonishes Voltaire's readers. There, the Jew, the Mohammedan, and the Christian negotiate with one another as if they were all the same religion. I'll translate from the French better than the text here and reserve the name heretic only for those who go bankrupt. There, the Presbyterian trusts the Anabaptist, the Mennonite, forerunners of the Amish. The Anglican accepts the word of the Quaker, leaving this peaceful and liberal assembly the exchange in London. Some go to the synagogue, others go to drink. This one is baptized in a great font in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That one has his son circumcised, while some Hebrew words that he does not understand are mumbled over him. Still others go to their church with their hats on to await the inspiration of God and all are content. If there were only one religion in England, there would be despotism. If there were two, they would cut each other's throats but there are 30 and they live happily and at peace with one another. In letter seven, Voltaire turns to what he calls the church of the sages, the Socinians, that is to say what now have become the Unitarians. The Socinians are anti-Trinitarian Christians. They believe in the unity of God. They are anti-Trinitarian. They believe that Jesus Christ is a human being who is the Messiah. Of all Christians, they are closest to what Voltaire himself believes, which is the religious philosophy we term deism a belief that one knows God from nature via the senses, the order of the world, the beneficence of the world, but that the diverse religions that populate the earth are human creations and reflect not what we have as knowledge of God, but what has been created by human religious culture. People worry that the Socinians may spell the end of Christianity, Voltaire writes, but with a certain irony, he notes, they need not worry because only fanatics and only at opportune historical moments can form great sects. Wise men cannot make a sect of their religion in an age when commerce flourishes, when people 
want peace. In the text, Voltaire writes, this sect is too small to be permitted public meetings. It will obtain permission, no doubt, if it becomes larger, but everyone is so lukewarm about these matters that a new or revived religion can scarcely succeed. Is it not amusing that Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all those unreadable writers, the great figures of the Protestant Reformation, should have founded sects that together cover all of Europe, that Muhammad should have given a religion to Asia and Africa, and that Newton, Clark, Locke, the greatest philosophers and the best writers of their time have scarcely managed to assemble a tiny flock, one that is indeed shrinking daily. One must arrive in the world to found a religion, he concludes, at the right moment. In letters eight to 10, Voltaire turns to English government and society. And he uses England as a foil to criticize the despotism and unenlightened government of France. This marks a great change from earlier criticisms of the old regime and a dramatic change. It is the abandonment of an appeal to an idealized medieval feudal past, an appeal that dominated criticisms of the monarchy at the end of the 17th century. And instead of reforming, rediscovering the virtues of the political past, it is an appeal to what might be brought into being. It offers a modern vision of a society in which laws rather than men's will rule, in which civil liberties are every citizen's right, regardless of birth or rank, in which religious tolerance puts an end to the civil strife and fanaticism and disorder of persecuting churches and sects, in which commercial prosperity allows the individual to serve his own interest in a way that enriches the society at large. Compare that as every French reader would to the circumstances of the French aristocracy who, if they sought to enter the world of commerce, would lose all of their privileges of aristocracy, in which the arts and sciences flourish, in which philosophy flourishes, for all of these are interrelated for Voltaire, and each feeds the other, and comparison to France is manifest on every page for every French reader. 
Voltaire indeed idealizes English life, but he does so to make his criticism of France even more effective. He stresses the constitutional nature of the English monarchy, the shared balance of power, the liberty that flows from a government of law, not whim, the equality of taxation in England. Clerics are taxed, aristocracy are taxed, the tax burden is shared. In France, with the burden of taxation off the shoulders of church, of aristocrats, of wealthy cities, of guilds, taxation falls overwhelmingly upon the peasantry. And local tax collectors who will set taxes look for any sign of wealth, success, flourishing to increase some peasant's tax, as a result of which the French peasant does not invest in agriculture, does not improve barns, does not increase livestock, any sign of wealth will lead to taxation as Voltaire will write in England, and he's talking now among people of different status, the tax rate stays the same, although the revenue from the lands increases. Thus, no one is crushed under the tax in England as opposed to France, and no one complains. The countryman's feet are not crushed in wooden clogs. He eats white bread. He is well clad. He does not hesitate to increase his flocks or cover his roof with tiles, lest his taxes be raised the following year. Many of these men are worth 200,000 francs and do not disdain working the land that has enriched them and on which they live as free men. He compares then the honorable status of commerce, the comfortable lot of the English yeoman as opposed to the French peasant. In short, the greatness, prosperity, and peacefulness of a tolerant, secular England under liberty and law engaged in productive commerce. The philosophical letters are a glorification of an open and religiously pluralistic bourgeois England as opposed to an intolerant, anti-commercial, aristocratic France. And note that in Voltaire's discussions of English liberty, they were acquired as unintended consequences. As with the letter on inoculation, which arose from the desire 
to preserve the beauty of Circassian daughters being sold into sex slavery. It is not the motive of something in the past that gives us the basis by which to judge it. It is its effect in terms of the quality, the peacefulness, the well-being, the prosperity of human life. English liberty arose, Voltaire insists, from a fight among birds of prey. The barons who created the Magna Carta did not do it for the liberty of all Englishmen. They did it to increase their power by checking the power of the king over them. The fight was over which bird of prey could prey upon the poor people of England. But in England, as opposed to France, rebellions, civil wars led to checks on royal power and the expansion of protection from arbitrary whim. Voltaire will write, indeed the barons gave us the Magna Carta, but they were birds of prey vying with an eagle for the blood of the doves. And yet from that by the formula one must pay attention to the limitation of any central power and the creation of balance of power and separation of power with each elite appealing to the populace and seeking to make life better for the populace there is a dynamic that can give us progress. In Voltaire's philosophical letters from England, philosophy is given a wide range of subjects indeed. Welcome to the French Enlightenment and thank you. What a wonderful lecture. One of the, the disappointments of Zoom is that uh, you cannot hear what would be the thunderous applause <laughs> at this moment in time, Alan. Well, it spares me from hearing pained silence. <laughs> you are Voltarian in relation to your own lecture. I don't, just want to, uh, we're going to get into the questions here now, everyone, and I want to remind you that you can submit through the Q&A feature here on Zoom. Dr. Kors and I will do our best to get through as many of them as we possibly can. I'm going to start, Alan, by, by asking you about the Quakers. You made the comment that for Voltaire, the English people had become more moral than the clergy. And, you know, while, while it is obviously true that there's a, a kind of light-hearted account of the Quakers that is very far from, you know, wherever Voltaire is. It's very clear that he's, he's not a Quaker in his description of this foreign and very strange sect. And yet, I want to ask you whether in a deeper sense, this 
admiration that comes through indicates that in some sense, Voltaire sees himself to be a kind of Quaker himself. Does he think that the Quaker's view, uh, this sense of being face to face with what is, well, the Quakers would say with God, but what is most fundamental is indeed kind of revelation or an instantiate, do the Quakers instantiate a fundamental principle that he himself, in his difference from them, also affirms? Voltaire is very much a Lockean in matters of religion. What we learn about ultimate things, we learn from the senses, from our experience of nature. And it's why he will paint as the fanatic side of Quakerism, this belief in direct illumination, direct revelation from God, so that someone stands up and speaks believing that it is the Holy Spirit speaking through him, or in the case of the Quakers, through her. For Voltaire, that's superstition. And he he's accused, I should tell you, by some French clerics of wanting to establish Quakerism uh, in France. What he admires in the Quakers so much is they are Christians without hypocrisy, in his view. They live a simple life. They treat each other all as brothers and sisters. They're pacifists. They have no coercion in their religion. They tolerate, as Penn does in Pennsylvania, all other religions. And the qualification there in Penn is all religions that believe in God. Uh, but indigenous religions qualified that way for Penn as well. So no, the empiricist, naturalistic Voltaire is not a Quaker. That is not a mode of knowledge. He finds them objects of admiration in so many ways, but objects of, of ridicule. The extraordinary moment when the Quaker says, well, it's difficult to distinguish between possession by the Holy Spirit and madness. And his, his history of the coincidences that won many Quakers to religion and uh, many new Quaker converts. And then you look at his discussion of the Socinians, and that is a revival of the Christian Arian heresy, a belief in the sole humanity of Christ and unitary nature of the divinity. And that's where he says, these, these are the savants, these are the wisest men. Newton is an Arian, is a, a Socinian, which he was. Clark was, uh, but they never can gain converts or sex because that's not how sectarian religion functions, by rational persuasion. Yes, I see that. What I'm, I suppose what, I, what I'm trying to dig into here, Alan, is, you know, for example, there's this lovely ironic touches, as you're pointing out in his account of the Quakers and of many things. And yet when it comes to William Penn and to Philadelphia, my reading at least is that there is no irony there. There's a deep affirmation of a principle that he thinks they have rightly instantiated. While he would no doubt reject, I assume, let's say the religious 
character of, you know, not being a religious, not being, not sharing the religious character of the sect. What I'm trying to get at here is whether he sees them to instantiate a profound principle in which the individual is not subordinate to what he regards as arbitrary mediation or authority. Yeah, that side of Quakerism clearly is something Voltaire admires so deeply. Uh, the elimination of clergy, right? Every Quaker, an individual in seeking religious knowledge. For Voltaire, they are, as the Socinians are, a step toward the world that he would like to see, abolition of hierarchical religion, of clergy, of religious, I mean, we know what he admires most about William Penn in Pennsylvania, one, religious tolerance. Religious toleration is an extraordinary thing in the early 18th century. It is seen as indifference. It is seen as contempt for God, contempt for your fellow creatures. For Voltaire, it is at the heart of humanity and at the heart of any sense of God worthy of the name, that belief in God is a, an ironic thing, something that brings peace, not violence. Uh, so these are steps toward knowledge of God without priests, without hierarchy, above all, religious toleration. And the other thing he admires so about William Penn is in the Constitution drawn up by Penn in Pennsylvania, it said the purpose of these rules on, on government are to limit the power and prevent abuses that might be made by me or my heirs. And that sense that you limit power is also what most informs Voltaire's admiration of the English solution when the birds of prey, in effect, uh, lords, aristocrats, and, and crown divided power, and then more and more had to seek the approval of commoners, and hence the growth in the power of the House of Commons, and now three balances that restrict each other's powers, which is, for Voltaire, the great means toward human well-being, the restriction of arbitrary whim and power. I've wandered from your question on the quake. No, not at all. This is a, I think this is just exactly to go further into the very question. The, the limit of the arbitrary use of power. There's a deep sense in what's going on here in Voltaire, whether he's talking about the Quakers, or whether he's talking about Parliament, or whether he's talking about commerce, I think in which to say that there is a principle that leads to our not being subordinate to arbitrary power is in a way to claim that that principle has a transcendent character. That is to say that it transcends our arbitrarity. It is one to which we all, it, the, the, I take it the Valtarian ideal is it is one to which we are all ultimately subject in an ideal society. Would he go that far to connect what 
is going on in the Quakers at their best, let's say, to put it in the way Voltaire might, with what is going on in English law and the subordination of the king, and with what is going on in commerce, that all of these are a kind of expression of the same principle. It may be that transcendent is a concept that could be there for Voltaire. It is not part of his language. It is not part of his mental furniture. The limitation of power we now know to have certain consequences by our study of history, by our study of England, by our study of the past centuries of religious war, by our study of the abuses of power um, by those who have it. Uh, and if the goal, as we said uh, last week for Voltaire, is utility, how do you diminish the suffering, the unnecessary suffering of human beings? How do you enhance the well-being and prosperity of human beings? That's the question that gets answered by religious toleration. That's a question that gets answered by limitation of power and arbitrary power. So it's an empirical issue for Voltaire. You look at history, you see the periods of suffering. You see what makes possible human well-being, what can diminish human suffering in some sense, it is what makes the letter on inoculation so central to Voltaire's strategy in the philosophical letters. Yes, and it also returns to what we said last, what you were lecturing on for us last week. I mean, the whole premise here is that individuals are capable of knowing something true about the world through their empirical rational abilities and that what they are knowing is not merely arbitrary, but that the individual is, you might say, connected with his or her own thinking capacities, however Voltaire might describe those, with reality in a kind of objective manner. It's not a mere impression or opinion, but when you say that we can judge that looking at history, even in the kind of empirical way, that one form is better than another, it is I take it precisely to claim that individuals have a capacity in themselves to know what it really is. Yeah, and if you look at his heroes, there are people who thought independently communicating that to their fellow creatures, uh, but who change the prospects of being human. And in some sense, England is one ongoing argument for France. Uh, I think it's very important to keep reminding oneself that the letters from England are a book about France in so many ways, um, that the audience is intended to be French, that the lessons to be drawn, the inferences are about France by comparison on page after page. And for Voltaire, if religious toleration is the sine qua non of Europe leaving the phantasmagoria of centuries now of religious hatred, religious warfare, religious civil war, 
he has to change the way people think about something so fundamental, religious intolerance, and argue, no, religious uniformity is not essential to human flourishing. Quite the opposite. Coerced uniformity of belief is not something the state must have so that people can live in peace um, and without chaos. He wants to argue it is precisely the opposite. It's attempts to coerce conscience, to coerce mind, to coerce religious belief uh, that lead to chaos, to strife, to hatred, to fanaticism. And again, this isn't a France that one generation before outlawed Protestantism and sent Protestant clerics to dungeons. And this is uh, two generations after the English Civil War and its religious divisions and the persecutions of Protestants by Catholics, Catholics by Protestants. Um, this is after the century that gave us the Thirty Years' War, in which religious hatreds led to mutual slaughters and tortures for Voltaire. England is showing Europe a way out of that phantasmagoria into a possible human future. And here's the remarkable thing. It brings with it prosperity. It brings with it peace. It brings with it flourishing in agriculture and the arts and sciences. Uh, so this is such a dramatic text. Uh, one of the first great Voltaire scholars of the 20th century, Gustave Lanson, wrote that the uh, philosophical letters were the first bomb fired at the old regime in France. Uh, I don't think his goal at all was to bring down the old regime. Uh, Voltaire fears revolution and disorder. Um, the reform is going to be a reform of the mind and of the sensibility um, and of the goals that people should have when they think about their uh, society. But this is a book written for France. It's amazing to me, and it's very beautiful about this text again and again, is that he aims to convey the truths he thinks he sees not by authority, but by argument, appealing to the rationality of his readers and listeners. We have a, a huge list, well, I should say not huge, but we've got about 20 absolutely wonderful questions here. We'll get through as many as we can, but I'm going to turn to those directly now, Alan. The first is, what was there about England that made it possible for the English to control the power of kings? Uh, in Voltaire's analysis, and I'd have to be a great English historian, which I am not, to comment on the value of Voltaire's analysis, but in my heart of hearts, I think he's got it pretty much correctly. What led to this in, in England, the, the limitation on king's power, was the conflict between king and those from which a king arose, the nobles, the barons, the princes, and the conflict, the competition for who gets what share of what the poor commoners are making and producing, the conflict between crown and aristocrats 
led to the revolt of the barons and militarily they're forcing the english crown to make concessions in the magna carta the great charter which limits the power of the king and then every time voltaire writes that a dispute between church elites baronial elites aristocratic elites royal the crown every time a dispute arose and reached crisis, people had to make an appeal to commoners. And so along comes the House of Commons, which then becomes in some sense, the balance between Lords and Crown. But central to Voltaire's analysis is this was not designed. This is a spontaneous order that arises out of conflict in, in England in which resolutions of crises arise from compromises that limit the power of the offending party enough that the rest of the equation can live in peace. So you have competition among elites that competition of elites spontaneously brings about a increasing balance of power in which all parts of English governance, crown, lords, commons, are limited in their power by the actions of the other two, let's call them branches now. But it's purely, purely a fortuitous outcome in England for Voltaire. He knows in France, we've had lots of rebellions, lots of revolts, and somehow they always end up in useless bloodshed that leaves nothing better. Well, they have two questions here that take up exactly, precisely the relation between England and France, and I'll turn to those now. Alan, one questioner writes, he says, after last week, I reread chapter 11. Although it demonstrates an empirical mindset, I don't think it explicitly advocates English empiricism over French rationalism. Do you agree? And does Voltaire anywhere make such an explicit statement? No, uh, I agree in the following sense that deliberately it is not explicitly drawn. Uh, as I said at the outset of this lecture, one of the central Voltairean techniques is let the reader draw the conclusions. Let the reader be the one who says, well, given that and given this, it follows. And he has presented to us an England of tolerance, commercial activity, and empirical philosophy. And the transitional chapter, right? How did England get from peace, prosperity, and now we're added the ability to eliminate the scourge of smallpox from human life. And what do we segue into? English philosophy, English empiricism, as opposed to French rationalism. And if you look at what happens in France with regard to inoculation, which Voltaire is already very aware of, it's been turned over to the faculty of theology 
which decides the issue logically. It's interfering with God, inoculation. Um, it's interfering with divine providence. Um, and it's turned over to the faculty of medicine that decides it on the basis of deduction from a rational uh, sorry, rational deduction from a principle. Uh, first, do no harm, from which it follows. You can't give someone a mild case of smallpox. Uh, first, do no harm. As opposed to that, you have the English who have studied, inferred from the Turkish and Circassian experience, the value and effectiveness of inoculation. It's been tested part of the whole system of induction and empirical testing. Uh, and indeed, the advocates of Voltaire's position in France um, will above all turn to English mortality tables, which are kept very well to show the empirical evidence for the efficacy of inoculation. So the question is a very good one because Voltaire never wants to say Look, Bacon, Locke, Newtonian ways of thinking as opposed to French rationalistic deduction from, from a priori principles is what gives you all these things. But there's the transition, right? We start off with the naive Voltaire and the Quakers, get through religious toleration. From religious toleration, we are into the flourishing of English prosperity, commerce in peace and with civil order. Uh, how did we get there in between the article on inoculation? Mm. Another question. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Kors. The next question also pertaining to the English and French is, to what extent do you think Voltaire would have been able to predict or understand the depredations of the French Revolution as Burke did? It's a wonderful question. I think it's very important to distinguish among thinkers of the French Enlightenment, their theoretical commitments, their abstract commitments. Uh, in the case of Voltaire, certainly restrictions of royal power, but they also live in a world of observable phenomena with their countrymen and how people behave. And as you can tell from the philosophical letters, Voltaire fears disorder. He fears passionate politics. He fears the equivalent of political religious, the equivalent in politics of religious enthusiasm and a, a willingness to kill. Voltaire's hope is that there will be a gradual revolution of the mind and of values aided by the fact that what he wishes for society, he believes actually will lead to great improvement in the human condition and reduction of human suffering. But that is not going to happen in moments of chaos. Uh, I studied perhaps the most radical salon group of, of thinkers in Paris from the mid to the late 18th century, a group around uh, an atheistic thinker, the Baron Dolbach. And historiography, historians writing in the 19th century tended to think, well, these people are so radical in their thought, they must have all been partisans of the revolution. 
those who survived into the revolution were mostly counter-revolutionary by the end of 1789. Seeing mobs in the street was not the model that Voltaire would have had in mind, though again, he's predisposed to think that the French don't do violence and disorder very well. That comparison, when the English have a civil war, they at least get an increase of liberty from it. When the French do, they just get bloodshed. This leads to a question that was asked last week that I wanted to return to, and that is, you know, in some respect, people would see some of the worst things that came from the 20th century, let's say the, the Holocaust, for example, in some sense to be an expression of a kind of technocratic rationalism. I want to relate that to a question this week, which is, for Voltaire, what has to be involved in the reform of the mind? And I want to relate those two questions by asking, you know, how does Voltaire think we, we move from, you know, confidence in a partial understanding of something to, to a, a greater understanding? How do we have the humility to not get, you might say, locked into a view that might be, you know, profoundly, profoundly wrong? For Voltaire, the model is there in uh, the progress in the natural sciences in the 17th and early 18th century, that it is possible to have cumulative knowledge to continually test one's own hypotheses, whether about astronomy um, or about society, always to test one's own hypotheses. And his model of positive change, I think, is first winning over the literate classes, uh, winning over people who, who read. Literacy is increasing in, in the 18th century, but the reading of serious books in a society in which 85% plus of a population has to work agriculture morning to night for the society to feed itself, you're going to need the educated stratum of society to learn and to be open to learning and to testing and to a certain intellectual humility about inherited beliefs uh, and then in the Voltairean model, though, uh, with a great deal of skepticism about people on the thrones of Europe, uh, at some point, those figures influenced by the new thought must gain the ear of those exercising political power. And for Voltaire and for most French Enlightenment thinkers, it is in the interest of even the crowned heads of Europe to find themselves crowned heads of prosperous, peaceable societies with limitations of power. Voltaire, for a long time, uh, is encouraged by Frederick II of Prussia uh, to be his tutor, to tell him what to read, to educate him. And, uh, when Voltaire is in particular difficulties, uh, late 1740s throughout some of the 1750s, uh, in France, he accepts an invitation to go to the court of Frederick II. And in Voltaire's own mind, he's going to lecture the enlightened Prussian king who admires Voltaire's own work. 
he's going to lecture him about such things as religious toleration, which he does grant Frederick in, in Prussia. Uh, he is going to lecture him and try to teach him about the real duties of a crown. He discovers at the court um, of Frederick the Great, or so he history has named him Frederick the Great. You'll note the old French king, old kings got names like Louis the Bold, Louis the Hunchback. Uh, in the 18th century, Catherine the Great, Louis, 17th century, Louis the Great. But Frederick the Great uh, has Voltaire at his court, and Voltaire is just deeply, deeply depressed by his discovery that he's there as an ornament, that Frederick likes him being there at dinner. He can show off the great playwright, poet, philosopher, wit of France at his table, and he he leaves Frederick's court with a sense of, of terrible defeat. And when he observes Frederick then beginning his program of conquest and war, he is just appalled and disillusioned. Uh, but that is a model that he holds to much more than he could even conceive of disorder producing something good, that uh, the learned will win the struggle for the educated, the new philosophy will win the struggle for educated minds, and those minds will gain the ear of political power. I'm so struck by the way you've put this because it seems as though what Voltaire would resist above all would be a justification of coercion. That yes. for him, that as a, one of my wisest friends once said to me, he put it this way, he said, the nature of truth is not coercive. And I take it that you're saying that Voltaire would rely on argument for the educated to make the argument among the scholars and for the scholars to make the arguments, make the argument to bend the ear of those who are ruling. And in, in his own mind, he has found his audience he has the ear of France. He's the most widely read Enlightenment figure in Europe. Uh, as I say, 110 volumes of works, over 100 volumes of correspondence. Uh, Voltaire, if there is uh, someone he learns of who's opposing a judge who's using re religious criteria in France to penalize beyond the law, when he sees unjust verdicts, uh, and someone protesting, he'll write the person who's protesting. He'll write the judge. He is involved in trying to change the mind, literally, of individuals with power. Uh, one of his most striking successes, uh, so to speak, in the 1760s, uh, there is a Protestant father in France who's accused of killing his own son with the help of his family because the son was going to convert to Catholicism. whole story was false, happened in Toulouse at a moment of intense religious uh, fervor and, and Catholic revival. And uh, Voltaire takes the cause of this family. Father is tortured to death, broken on the wheel, every bone broken. Family is deprived of all its good, banished from France some of the children in prison, Voltaire takes their case and appeals to the conscience of Europe. 
um, when judicial murder in the name of religion is occurring, no one is safe. There is humanity and there is inhumanity. Which side are you on? All the gloves come off at this point in Voltaire's life on the issue of religious toleration. He will get the king's council to overturn, too late for those who are dead, but to overturn the verdict of the magistrates, the court in Toulouse and the appellate court um, in Toulouse. And he will be feted Voltaire as the savior of this family. Um, he will write his treatise of religious toleration uh, in the starkest term. Are you a monster or do you have humanity? Can you live with judicial murder or do you wish a decent civil society? So this is the issue of prime importance. Coercion of the mind is a root to the death of knowledge and the death and torture of bodies. Uh, and again, this sense, and it's not without resonance in our contemporary world, that uniformity of belief, uniformity of teaching, uniformity of doctrine is no friend of truth, but it's also no friend of decent human relationships, and it's no friend of a stable political order. Coercion of the mind always leads to catastrophe. I want to go right up on uh, what you've just said so powerfully, Alan. At one point uh, in your lecture, you, you quoted, I don't know if it was the French bishops or who it was, but that the that intolerance could be compassion or love. And there's a question here about our present day that picks right up on this, and it is, what is there about contemporary culture that makes the intolerance of pre-revolutionary France somehow attractive? And I may say, and indeed, even the claim will be that that intolerance is morally justifiable. Uh, it's the same as it was among those defenders of intolerance in the early modern world. Uh, we know the truth <laughs> and our truth is good for everyone. Whether you know that or not, you will thank us when you understand. And uh, absent people seeing fundamental political issues the same way. Some people believe a stable, peaceful society cannot flourish. For Voltaire, of course, it's exactly the opposite. I don't think it is coincidental that a large number of people who favor coercion of the mind consider themselves so fiercely anti-enlightenment, or as they like to say, anti-enlightenment project. Well, let me, uh, I want to pursue this in a couple of ways here. And I want to put these questions very simply. What is at stake in freedom of conscience? Let me put this another way. Why does it matter that a human being follow her or his conscience? There were two dramatic arguments on that that you see arising in the 17th and, and into, the, into the 18th century. The first is the consequentialist argument, 
that the, the consequences of coercion of the mind and soul leads to civil strife, instability, um, a society in which, as during the English Civil War, crops rot in the field, as during the Thirty Years' War, people slaughter each other with uh, indifference. The other argument is that your soul is your own, and that its freest act is choice and that your whole moral quality is determined by the choices that you freely make. When Voltaire, uh, so strikingly for readers, begins the letter on the Church of England saying, an Englishman is a gentleman and goes to heaven by the path he chooses. That word choice is so striking that it's not a duty, it is a choice. Uh, and both within secular thought and within schools of religious thought that are traumatized by the sight of Christian mutual fratricide through two centuries of wars of religion, uh, the argument there became, what good is it if what you ultimately are saying, in this case to God, is, this is not what I believe about you, but this is what I'm going to say I believe about you because I'm coerced to do so. You've just damned someone. Pierre Bale, a great uh, French philosopher, thinker, I believe Calvinist, but, but also one of the most creative minds of the late 17th century, Pierre Bale argues that if religious coercion forces someone to show that he cares more about human responses than divine will, that he cares more about protecting himself than bearing witness uh, to God's truth, that by getting the Protestant to go to Catholic Mass, or by getting the Catholic to renounce Mass and sing hymns in a Protestant chapel, far from saving souls, you've damned them, because a person is what a person chooses to be. That's what it is to be human. And to follow people into the inner sanctum of their soul is something that Voltaire would simply put off limits. Uh, and indeed, an increasing number of Christian thinkers responding to two centuries uh, of religious Christian fratricide are coming to the same position. Uh, Coercion has no moral value. I find so beautiful about this argument is that the individuals coming to know the importance of their following their own conscience is precisely what leads to the respect of others. Would you say a word about why the fundamental importance of following one's own conscience is not 
at attention with, but rather leads to the affirmation of the affirmation of other people's views precisely in their difference to your own. Give me a hook to Voltaire on this. Well, it's clear in Voltaire in his account of the the need or the, or the account of the the thirty sects that he describes in England that he regards these as as necessary to as let's say underlying the freedom of conscience that is there present. And if there were if there were uniformity in that in of religion, he seems to believe that freedom would not exist. And so, in a way, Alan, I'm trying to connect this to what one might see as a rise in uh, intolerance in our own time. And I'm asking if Voltaire could make a case to someone who is convinced of the truth of their own views and tempted to wish to coerce others into that. Would Voltaire make a case and say, hold on, no. Uh, Here's why the difference of others' views is fundamental, even to your own uh, flourishing. Uh, the most famous quotation assigned to Voltaire is something he never said and never wrote. It's, uh, though I disagree with what you say, I'll defend to my death your right to say it. Uh, He never wrote that, never said it. I doubt he ever thought that. But uh, that was given by an English woman who wrote biographies of, of historical figures and she put that in quotation marks and assigned it to Voltaire. But what he does clearly believe more deeply than he believes any historical fact, I think, is that coercion of mind and soul create a circumstance in which at best everyone is a hypocrite or could be a hypocrite and you have no idea what people sincerely and actually think, and that the historical consequence again and again of coercion of soul and mind has been not only the impoverishment of your own intellectual life, because you hear none of these new arguments that might change the world in the way you are, Um, in the world, but that attempts to coerce soul and mind have led throughout all of history to death, to orphans, to widows, to mangled bodies, to societies that devolve into a civil war in which the crops aren't harvested. It's a catastrophic historical framework that we can see in almost every period of history for Voltaire. Coercion ends up in catastrophe, intellectual, religious coercion. On that note, perhaps. On that note, I cannot think of a better, we should conclude. My goodness, Alan, In a time in which some may see growing intolerance, you have come to us today not to assert the necessity, merely to assert the necessity of intellectual freedom, but to demonstrate that necessity in argument. 
There is no greater deference to truth and no greater affirmation of that very intellectual freedom than that. Thank you so very, very much. Thank you. My thanks to Ralston for the privilege of being able to give this lecture and my very deep thanks um, to everyone who took the time to listen um, and help discover Voltaire. Thank you all very much. We very much hope to have you back, Alan. I would love that. Good afternoon for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Ralston College Podcast. Today's guest was the distinguished Enlightenment historian, Alan Charles Coors, who gave the second of two lectures on Voltaire's philosophical letters. Voltaire gives us an inspiring example of someone who was able to praise religious traditions of which he was not a member, and to set aside the biases of his own class, criticizing those parts of his own social world that were well protected by powerful cultural forces. One cannot but find, I think, a similar kind of sensitivity and courage in Alan Charles Coors himself. It is not too much to say that Dr. Coors embodies the very Enlightenment ideals that he studies. I am proud to call him a friend. Finally, let me say, we love hearing from you, our listeners. So please, by all means, leave us a comment or send us a note. And be sure to sign up for our newsletter, and we'll be sure to let you know about future events like the lecture you heard today. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Till next time. <laughs>